You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. A handwritten note scribbled on an American Airlines notepaper from Elvis Presley. Elvis was at the gates of the White House and he wanted to see President Nixon. I think it's just the incongruity of it. This lavish, big belt, jumpsuit-wearing super rocker, along with the spick-and-span politician, smiling at the camera, shaking hands. Some of the photos the rock star keeps on his fat gold sunglasses, rock and roll alongside plaid. For this reason... It's one of the National Archives' most popular items requested as much as the Constitution or Declaration of Independence, if not more. The National Archives sells T-shirts of the photo of the King and Dick Nixon, sells freestanding photos, posters, even snow globes. Such an odd image. But there is more to the story than just a photo. Dwight Chapman, the president's appointment secretary, was known as Slick because of his hair. And on December 21st, 1970, Slick would get to pursue one of the most famous parts of his White House career job, the other being his role in Watergate. But this was all prior to that. A handwritten note scribbled on an American Airlines notepaper from Elvis Presley. Elvis was at the gates of the White House, and he wanted to see President Nixon. The note was strange. He was offering any services I can to help the country out and requesting to be made a federal agent at large. He indicated he would be at a nearby hotel. The letter's long, and it's somewhat rambling. It's in poor, legible script. But it's important to note from it that this is no social visit that Elvis is playing the president of the United States. It's overtly political. Nixon had just been inaugurated. His inauguration was a statement. There was a campaign that he ran on. He was against the hippies, against the counterculture, the drug culture. There are six pages of writing, six separate notes, handwritten, kind of scrawled. Elvis was not a letter writer by habit, and his penmanship, particularly in this situation, was poor. Page one. First, I would like to introduce myself. I'm Elvis Presley, and I admire you and have great respect for your office. I talked to Vice President Agnew in Palm Springs three weeks ago and expressed my concern for our country, the drug culture, the hippie elements, the SDS, 
Black Panthers, etc. Do not consider me as their enemy, or as they would call it, the establishment. I call it America, and I love it. Sir, I can and will be of any service that I can to help the country out. I have no concern or motives other than helping the country out. Elvis' visit to the White House today was spontaneous, but the Nixon White House worked fast as well and reacted to quick-moving events. That's the way the president wanted it. So, that day, on to Bob Haldeman's desk. Chief of Staff of the President was a memo from Dwight Chapman indicating Presley's desire to visit the president along with some reasons. If the president wants to meet some bright young people outside of government, Presley might be the perfect one to start with. Bob Haldeman reads the memo and scrawls in the margin, You must be kidding. Yet, at the bottom of the memo, he has the option to approve the visit of, the, of Presley with the president or disapprove, and his single initial H is in the approve box. So the visit is going to happen. A meeting was set up for 12.30 that day. Elvis appears at noon, wearing his jumpsuit, large gold belt buckle, and sunglasses. He carried a gift for the president, a Colt forty-five pistol from his private collection. This is a World War II pistol, a historic one. Secret Service checks it out. It's in a box. Nixon's aide Bud Crow is in the meeting, and Elvis, wanting a visit with the president, is in luck here because Crow is a huge fan. The King of Rock and Roll and the President of the United States meet in the office, snap the photos. That's the official record of the story, but it leaves some lingering questions. Why does a rock star go and visit the President of the United States? Why was it so rush-rush? Why was he uninvited? Doesn't he have staff, planners, a manager? Wouldn't you think something like this should be organized on behalf of Presley? You'd think it all would be handled better, that maybe Colonel Tom Parker, his manager, would be involved. And the answer is that it was all last minute, and likely the result of Elvis's lack of sleep, perhaps influenced by the uppers, barbiturates, and downers that he was taking. Jerry Schilling is one of Elvis's longtime friends, and he accompanied him on the trip to Washington. He spoke about it. He was a member of what they might call the Memphis Mafia. He was one of Elvis's old Memphis friends. Elvis rarely did anything alone. And even to watch TV, he would have five guys with him. But oddly enough, Jerry Schilling, who is a producer and lives in a Hollywood house, Elvis in the past had bought a house for Jerry, gets a phone call. And he hears the voice on the other end. It's me. Elvis was at the Dallas airport on his way to Los Angeles, and he wanted Jerry Schilling to pick him up at LAX. Elvis, and this concerned Jerry, had planned the trip himself, not normally what he does. Schilling races to the airport, picks up Elvis, takes him back to his mansion on Hillcrest Drive in Los Angeles, and the next morning, 
Elvis says that he was arguing with Vernon, his father, and Priscilla, his wife. They were bugging him about how he spent his money. He got so aggravated that all by himself he got on the first plane out. It happened to be bound for Washington, so that's how he went. That's where he went. And now he wants to return there, this time with Schilling. They book two first-class seats to D.C., but they still need cash, and it's a Sunday night in 1970. There are no ATMs. Elvis's limousine driver, Sir Gerald, arranges for a check to be cashed at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. Schilling writes one for $500 with Elvis signs. Before they leave the house, Elvis history buff grabs his commemorative World War II Colt forty-five revolver, bullets included, and stows it in his bag. Now, then, as in now, you weren't allowed to bring guns onto an aircraft, but Elvis was, at this time at least, treated a little differently than other passengers. Elvis on the airplane is going to get a, a special hello and handshake from the staff and from the pilot. So they take off. And then, during the flight, Elvis comes to Schilling asking for the money. Where's the money? Where's the $500? Elvis, Jerry said, we're going to Washington. That's all we've got. Schilling knew exactly what Elvis was about to do because Elvis was very generous. He was going to give it to a passenger, whose story he heard. You don't understand. This soldier's been in, in Vietnam. Grabs the money, heads back to coach, and gives the soldier all the cash that they had. But while he's returning, he bumps into a U.S. senator, George Murphy, the U.S. senator from California. And they chat for a while, and Elvis gets an idea from that conversation. And he comes back to a seat asking for stationery, and the steward gets to him, and he starts writing that letter. Dear Mr. President, first I would like to introduce myself. I am Elvis Presley. So I wish not to be given a title or appointed position. I can and I will do more good if I were made a federal agent at large. And I will help out by doing in my way through communications with people of all ages. First and foremost, I'm an entertainer. But all I need is the federal credentials. I am on this plane with Senator George Murphy, and we have been discussing the problems that our country is faced with. Sir, I'm staying at the Washington Hotel, room 505-506-507. I have two men who work with me by the name of Jerry Schilling and Sonny West. I am registered under the name of John Burroughs. I will be here for as long as it takes to get the credentials of a federal agent. I've done an in-depth study of drug abuse and communist brainwashing techniques. And I am right in the middle of the whole thing, where I can and will do the most good. He's at the Washington Hotel, which is not at all very far from the White House. And uh, John Burroughs, the name that he uses to register, as if anyone would be fooled by seeing a cape-wearing, sunglass-wearing, uh, jumpsuit-clad uh, uh, person, but uh, that name was uh, a name from one of his characters in one of the movies that Elvis performed in. And he ends the note on the fourth page. I'm glad just uh, so long as it's kept private. You can have your staff or whomever call me anytime, today, tonight, tomorrow. I was nominated this coming year one of America's ten most outstanding young men. That will be in January 18th in my hometown of Memphis, Tennessee. 
I'm sending you the short autobiography about myself so you can better understand this approach. I would love to meet you to say hello if you're not too busy. Respectfully, Elvis Presley. He then, uh, on the sixth page, has all sorts of phone numbers that uh, probably any any fan would love to have, including numbers for the Colonel Tom Parker in his office and his personal phone. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Now, one thing that doesn't get a lot of discussion about this is the George Murphy connection. Uh, George Murphy is a Republican senator from California. He's not that well known, but he was in some musicals and in some movies, one uh, in 1951, won an Academy Award. Um, He left acting in 51 after that award and then started running in politics. And from 1965 to 1971, he was a U.S. senator from California. And the person that he defeats is Pierre Solinger former press secretary in the Kennedy White House, who had been appointed to serve a uh, senator who had died uh, term. So, you know, Murphy was pro-Nixon. Murphy was um, pro-Vietnam War. So I think while the whole episode is strange, remembering that some of this idea generated from Elvis having run into a U.S. senator, and his note very much says to President Nixon via George Murphy. So um, maybe it takes a little bit of the zaniness out of the idea, even though it's still kind of a crazy event that occurs. The plane lands. It's early in the morning, about 8.30. Limo pulls up to the northwest, northwest gate of the White House. Elvis gets out, cape on, jumpsuit on, and hands his letter to a security guard who is kind of looking at this guy with a cape and saying that this letter has to go to the president. Um, Elvis's friend Jerry Schilling realizes that the guard is thinking this guy looks like Dracula, comes out and kind of explains the situation. This is Elvis Presley. Um, 
The guard agrees to deliver the letter to the president, and Elvis and Schilling retire to the Hotel Washington to wait. Though it was a surprise, Nixon's aide, who who Nixon's aides, who were the ones to get the letter, uh, are attracted to the idea of a meeting. I mean, first of all, because aide Bud Crow is a huge fan, but also because they thought Presley would be a perfect start to the president engaging with some bright young people. Ironically, the, the, the other reason that the aides are on board is the concern that Presley expressed in his letter about the drug culture. This is a time when drugs had become powerful symbols of youthful rebellion, political dissent, that they were, and you have to look at it from the point of view of 1970, and this is the Nixon White House, a Republican White House, a conservative approach, you know, law and order candidate, and drugs are seen as the thing that's turning young people, um, you know, crazy and and making them do all sorts of bad things and misbehave. Crow admits later that he had been a little bit of starstruck. He's a huge Elvis fan, and this is the impetus for the meeting. Uh, he said it was an opportunity to ask Presley to work with us in bringing a more positive attitude to the young people. Here's what Dwight Chapman, who's also in favor, it suggests to uh, Haldeman. This morning, Bud Crow will have Mr. Presley in and talk to him about drugs and what Presley can do. Bud will also check to see if there's some kind of honorary agent at large or credential of some sort that we can provide for Mr. Presley. After Bud has met with Presley, it's recommended that we have Bud bring Presley in during open hour to meet briefly with the president. You know that several people have mentioned over the past few months that Presley is very pro the president. He wants to keep everything private, and I think we should honor his request. I've talked to Bud Crow about the whole matter, and we both think it would be wrong to push Presley off on the vice president since it will take very little of the president's time, and it can be extremely beneficial for the president to build some rapport with Presley. So, uh, yeah, so we almost had a photo of what Elvis and uh, Spiro Agnew instead, right? <laughs> okay, so Haldeman agrees, and then it goes to Bud Crow to write a memorandum for the president. So in addition to learning a bit about Elvis, you're also seeing the workings of the Nixon White House so quickly. Uh, you're seeing a typed memo with several points, purpose, participants, and talking points. So the president doesn't, doesn't just go into a meeting blind, not in the Nixon White House. They're talking points of what he's supposed to say. Purpose, to thank Elvis Presley for his offer to help in trying to stop the drug epidemic in this country and to ask him to work with us in bringing a more positive attitude to young people throughout the country. In his letter to you, Elvis Presley offered to help as much as possible with the growing drug problem. He requested the meeting with you this morning when he presented himself to the guard at the Northwest Gate bearing a letter. Participants, Elvis Presley, Bud Crow. Talking points. A, we have asked the entertainment industry, both television and radio, to assist us in our drug fight. B, you are aware that the average American family has four radio sets. 98% of the young people between 12 and 17 listen to radio. Between the time a child is born and he leaves high school, it's estimated he watches between 15,000 and 20,000 hours of television. That's more time he spends in the classroom. See, the problem is critical. As of December 14, 1970, 1,022 people died this year in New York alone from just narcotic-related deaths. 208 of these were teenagers. D. Two of youth's folk heroes, Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin, recently died within a period of two weeks reportedly from drug-related causes. Their deaths are a sharp reminder of how rock music culture has been linked to the drug subculture. If our youth are going to emulate the rock music stars 
From now on, let those stars affirm their conviction that true and lasting talent is the result of self-motivation and discipline and not artificial chemical euphoria. All of this memo prepared all these facts and figures. And item E, suggestions for Presley activities. One, work with the White House staff. Two, cooperate with and encourage the creation of an hour television special at which Presley narrates as stars such as himself sing popular songs and interpret them. Uh, three, encourage fellow artists to develop new rock musical theme. Get high on life. Four, record an album with the theme Get High on Life at the Federal Narcotic Rehabilitation and Research Facility at Lexington, Kentucky. Five, be a consultant to the Advertising Council on how to communicate anti-drug messages to youth. So between 8.30 and 12.30, we've already got a plan for how to handle Elvis Presley. There's an organized White House. And Presley and Nixon meet. Elvis shows Nixon the extensive collection of police badges he already owned and had stashed conveniently in his person. Bud Crow's letter of how the meeting went afterwards said that they talked about many things, including Elvis has mentioned that he's playing in Las Vegas. Nixon mentions how difficult it is to play in Las Vegas. I'm not sure how he knows that. Nixon indicated that going into the talking points he's been prepared with, that Presley could reach young people. And here Elvis said that he did his thing just by singing, that if he made speeches, he wouldn't reach young people. He said, according to Crow, that the Beatles were anti-American and had made their money in England and then attacked the country. Now, I have to point out, this is recorded by a Nixon aide, and the Nixon people were kind of anti-Beatles too, particularly anti-John Lennon, who was politically involved against them. So, yeah, I don't know to what extent Elvis said it, or he was paraphrased in the text. Crow indicates that he, that Elvis indicates to Nixon in a very emotional manner that he was on the president's side. He said that he was a poor kid from Tennessee, that he got a lot from this country, and he'd like to help. The president at first is reluctant to agree to Elvis's request to get a badge from the Bureau of Narcotics, but eventually, after hearing his story, he, he looks up and says, Bud, can we get him a badge? Bud Crow says, well, Mr. President, if you want to get him a badge, we can do that. And Nixon says, well... Get him a badge. Badge appears eventually while Elvis is showing him pictures and other things, and Nixon is giving him some cufflinks and other gifts that they have at the White House to give to visitors. Elvis was happy. He steps around the desk and hugs Nixon, then asks if he could bring his bodyguards to enjoy the moment, Schilling and, and West. Bodyguards come in. President went behind his desk, opened up the bottom drawer to give them each a gift. Elvis senses that there's a lot of stuff in that drawer, and he goes behind the desk as the president's taking out the cufflinks and paperweights and golf balls, and Elvis is reaching towards the back of the drawer and taking out the real gold stuff, the valuable presents. You know, this was four days before Christmas, and their hands are filled with all these presidential goodies. Crow later uh, said that after the meeting, he kind of got the sense that Elvis was kind of pulling a fast one on them that he really wanted the badge more than to join this crusade. Um, Elvis said all the right words and was trying to do the right thing, Crow said, many years later. But 
I think he clearly wanted to get a badge, and he knew that was the only way to get it. Oh, man, we were set up, but it was fun. So Elvis and his friends leaves this extraordinary visit. The office, uh, official Oval Office photographer takes uh, about 22 pictures of Nixon and Elvis. But per Presley's wishes, this meeting was kept secret. It's 13 months later that Jack Anderson, the famous reporter, broke the story, and the White House admitted that the meeting had taken place and that Presley got a badge. Uh, Jack Anderson's column said, um, Elvis Presley, the swivel-hipped singer, has been issued a federal narcotics badge. He found out about it from Deputy Narcotics Director John Finlater, who uh, had written a memoir, and uh, Anderson had gotten hold of the galleys. Probably someone at the publisher sent it to him. Now, Bud Crow's memo had indicated all those ways that they could help and continue the relationship and use Elvis Presley for the Nixon's war on drugs and to have him record a song, you know, get high on life and all of that. And none of that really happened. And I think it's a combo that this was a really ad hoc, spontaneous decision from a very busy rock star and the White House also got caught up increasingly in the re-election and then the Watergate scandal and uh, didn't pick up and follow up on this. Elvis kept his narcotics badge until he died in 1977. It's on display at Graceland. It was just an honorary badge, Crow said later, uh, but it he took it to look like he'd been given a real agent's badge. As Crow indicated, there were no federal agents at large. Clint Hill, a Secret Service agent who was in the White House that way, also uh, that day, also concurred. Elvis believed he had some authority, which he did not have. He had no power of arrest or any legal authority whatsoever, but he went away happy. According to his ex-wife, uh, Priscilla Presley, in her book, Elvis and Me, the NARC badge represented some kind of ultimate power to him. With the badge, he believed he could legally enter any country wearing both guns and carrying any drugs he wished. But um, it wasn't all sinister. Priscilla indicated in the TV in interview in which she read uh, Elvis's letter to Nixon and, and everything like that and talked about it, that she believed that he was legitimately looking to cut down on crime and street drugs and that he could be an example and uh, we know both from what she said and from uh, the interviews with uh, Elvis's doctor that this was a person that did draw a long, a big separation between street drugs and those drugs that might be considered medicine, even if he was abusing them. There's one final note of Elvis and Nixon. Uh, Nixon resigns from office under the threat of impeachment three and a half years after his meeting with Presley. Um, he's subsequently hospitalized, and Elvis calls him to wish him well. I want to take a moment to talk about the Premium Podcast from My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, which enables you to help support me, support this program, and if you like this program, you'll get more of it. 
because there's a number of things. First of all, it includes an archive. And depending on your membership level, that's going to determine how many episodes in the archive you get. It also includes an extra podcast where I talk about different things. A couple of recent episodes to talk about. One, I go into more detail about the emoluments clause and George Washington and how he applies to it. I talk about Samantha Smith, a young child who in 1983 writes a letter to the, so- the leader of the Soviet Union and what happened from there. And I talk about the Lusitania. We've done an episode on Woodrow Wilson. The Lusitania incident and the sinking of that ship was a most important event uh, in Wilson's foreign policy and in what was going to happen in the run-up to America's entry in World War I. We talk about that, what happened, and what happened within the Wilson administration. That's just three examples of multiple content items. There's over 45 content items in the library for the premium podcast alone, not even including archives that you could get for the past episodes. So please strongly consider the premium podcast from My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Can be as little as $2 a month. www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.